Hello and welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright coming to you from London and my co-host here, Carrie Plitt, is coming from Oxford. Hey, Carrie, how are you doing? Hi, Octavia from Oxford. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oxford, coming at you. That's right. Um, I feel like one of those like switchboard operators, you know? Yeah, I mean, I just felt like a drive-time DJ. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I just kind of smoothed my way in there. But um, here we are, literary friction Hi. happening. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm 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 healthy finally, and I'm full of spring. So yeah, I can't complain really. How are you? I mean, the same. Finally healthy. Although I have to say, I've got 409 unread emails in my inbox, and it's making me feel bad. <laughs> But that aside, and bearing in mind that inbox zero is just not an attainable goal for me, I'm accepting it. Nor is it a healthy goal, as Oliver Berkman says in 4,000 Weeks. It's literally a distraction from the important stuff oh, of life. Thank God for you. Thank God for Oliver Berkman. <laughs> I'm good. My inbox is bad. That's how things are. Cool. Before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You'll also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 14 waiting for you there, and we will be releasing one shortly about our relationship with plays and playwrights. And you also have a chance to suggest themes. That was a theme suggested by one of our patrons. Our patron Diane recommended that Yes, theme. thank you, Diane. <laughs> also, a quick reminder about merch. We've made another run of our really excellent, sturdy literary friction totes, which are available this time round at a discounted price because life is only getting more expensive thanks to this hellscape of a government. So if you would like one of them, um, we sell them on Etsy and the links are on our socials and they'll be in the show notes. So get them while they're hot. You won't regret it. Yep. And there is a further special discount for patrons. So if you're not already a patron, then you can sign up at the link in the show notes. That's right. And patrons, thank you as ever for your wonderful support. It is the reason we can keep making the show. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But now back to Minisode 30. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. Absolutely right. Carrie Plitt from Oxford. This mini-sode is basically a sister show to our previous one about bookshops, because when we were doing that, we just kept thinking, libraries, libraries, libraries. So this one is dedicated to libraries. You will be absolutely astonished to hear that we love libraries here at Literary Friction. <laughs> Those other places where you can go and get your hands on the books that you want, the books that you don't yet know you want, the books that want you, and everything in between. So Carrie, let's start at the beginning. What is great about libraries and what do you look for in a library? Well, so many things are great about libraries, Octavia. First of all, there's obviously the concept of free books accessible to anyone. <laughs> That's true. What a great a concept. Really great place to start. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But of course, the best libraries are so much more than a place where you can get free books. They are community spaces. You can go on computers. You can read there. You can meet your friends for a coffee, maybe. I don't know if they serve coffee that actually they don't really serve coffee too. <laughs> never met anyone for a coffee in a library. I have the British library. Okay. Yes. Yeah. They do have coffees at the, and in fact, I was at the British library yesterday getting a coffee with someone. So I should know that better. Yeah. You can go through references. You can 
search information about local crimes that happened and do some amateur sleuthing. Um, you can go to talks. <laughs> you can take your children. Um, or you can use it as a safe space to rest. So I was thinking about um, the book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Azeki, which really gets that many different spaces that a library actually is. So I guess what I look for in a library is that kind of welcoming spirit. And also, you cannot talk about libraries without talking about librarians, who are the people who make these spaces welcoming and give out the free books. I mean, I don't think I've ever met a librarian, contrary maybe to the image of them as like shusher, uptight people who aren't passionate and welcoming and warm and just excited for other people to read books. And this is an aside, but... You know, we all know how precarious the ability for libraries to do what they do is right now with budget cuts. And so it seems all the more important to celebrate them and really support them. And as another aside, I love that libraries, you know, when I was thinking about the show, I was like, a library can literally be a room full of books in a tiny town where people go to check out the latest romance novel, or it can be the Western Room of the British Library where like beautiful folios and manuscripts are kept that are the rarest of the rare things in the world. And those are all libraries. Like it encompasses so many different kinds of spaces and ideas and things. Yeah, you've really hit the nail on the head there. Because I think also what you said about librarians, you know, either being these like wonderful open-minded, open-hearted people who want to help you figure out what next to read or sort of draconian shushes who are all about <laughs> like restricting your ability to express yourself. And I think that libraries can go both ways as well, right? They can be like, as you described, like really vital community spaces, or they can be quite excluding and quite elitist. I had some very kind of policed experiences in some kind of very uppity university libraries in my mm. time as a graduate student where, you know, I was a student, I had every right to be there and I was made to feel like I was going to steal somebody's ancient manuscript. <laughs> um, so they're funny, they're funny places for that reason, I think. But, you know, m listening to you, it actually really, really made me miss being part of a local library. I haven't been for a while. I think probably a combination of spending all of my time at the British Library and the various London university libraries when I was doing my PhD. So I didn't really want to hang out in libraries in my spare time as well. <laughs> and also I've moved around quite a lot in the last few years or just before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit. So I just, I'm not that connected to a real life library and I don't have a relationship with a space like that right now. And I actually really, really miss it. Mm. But having said that, one of the cool things about society just generally being more online, especially since you and I started at university, which was now quite a frighteningly long time ago, <laughs> um, is that now there's loads and loads of digital libraries where you can borrow online versions of books for free. And I just think that's the coolest thing ever. And my interaction with them has mainly been not necessarily academic texts, but definitely sort of nonfiction critical theory works or uh, historical documents. But I've used things like UbuWeb and Monoscope where they have loads and loads of fascinating things. It's like an anarchist resource library on there. I think Monoscope. I've never used digital libraries to read novels or poetry, but I'm sure they're out there and I'm sure they're all there for free. Yeah. Well, actually, my sister borrows audiobooks and eBooks all the time from her local library. And I think 
that's true of most libraries in the UK as well. You can check out ebooks and audiobooks and you get put in queues depending on who's checking them out. And you can only have them for a certain amount of time, but you can definitely do it, which is great. Yeah, such a great idea. One that I also hadn't thought of at all, but actually after our recent Patreon episode um, about audiobooks, two patrons, Joanne and Donald, both really kindly jumped in um, to tell us about two different services. There's one called BorrowBox and one called Libby's, which are both services you can use to borrow audiobooks for free. And I think through your local library, but possibly Libby's you can use separately. I'm not sure. I haven't looked into it, but they sound extremely cool and a great way to circumvent Bezos' monopoly on all things to do with reading. (laughs) (laughs) What is your earliest library-related memory then? I spent a lot of time at the Wenham Public Library when I was a kid. I love the children's section, which was, in my memory at least, a kind of small cramped space in the basement that I think had a fish tank and maybe smelled a little bit like the fish tank Uh, as well. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I don't know about my earliest memory, but a couple of formative memories. One is that my mom signed me up for a reading group at the library with the librarian there, which I did with my friend Carolyn, who is a listener to the show. So I hope she hears this when we were about, I think, nine or 10 years old. And she introduced us to some really, really amazing books all of which felt slightly older than our age group. So we all thought we were very like intelligent and sophisticated. And <laughs> it was just great. I remember loving The View from Saturday by E.L. Konigsberg, which is a book about four members of a student quiz team, and particularly The Ear, the Eye, and the Arm by Nancy Farmer, which was set in kind of post-apocalyptic Zimbabwe, which was about a group of siblings working in a plastic mine. Whoa. It's so, it was so good. I mean, I haven't, I literally haven't read it since I was 10, but it really made an impression on me. I thought it was an amazing novel. The other strong memory is the day when, I think it was the same librarian, decided that it might be time for me to start checking books out of the adult section. And she literally brought me up to the adult floor of the library. And it felt like a rite of passage at the time. And I remember being so excited, but feeling a real sadness for the loss of my kind of innocent child self in the the children's (laughs) section. Um, Yeah. How amazing that you literally had to climb a staircase of your young self. Isn't that amazing? Very, very formative. I'm not surprised you remember that all these years later. (laughs) How about you? Well, similarly, my local library was split into two different buildings and the children's library was in, in a kind of basement. Um, it was the Porchester Library in West London, which is still there today. And the grown-up bit is thriving. The grown-up bit is in this really imposing, quite kind of beautiful, austere building, which is 10 minutes down the road from my parents' house, where actually I sat some of my final exams as a <laughs> undergraduate. So that was always a bit weird. It has some of those huge public spaces and halls that they have mad weddings there and then they have exams and stuff. And then there's the library downstairs, which is a real community library where people use it for all the things that you described in our first answer. But the kids library is the one that I have the strongest memories of, especially because it no longer exists. So it's preserved in this very visceral way in my mind. And it's always associated with like the bubble of excitement that I would get in my stomach when my parent or whoever was looking after me announced that we were going to go down the road to the library because I grew up without any siblings. 
And so there were these moments where it would mean like potentially seeing other kids. I mean, I make it sound like I never saw other kids. I had a very, no, no, I had like a very, very rich social life as a child. But, you know, there are moments in your life when you're kind of five, where when you don't have siblings, I think all my only children friends have similar memories where you're just quite bored because there's never enough adults to play with you. And then there are these moments where you get this like thrill of being around other children. And I used to hop from foot to foot by the door, just like so, so excited to go. And then of course I get there and probably be quite nervous and like not want to talk to the children or whatever, but it was a big feelings, big feelings time. Um, but it was also essentially this windowless basement that was tucked right at the back beneath the Baptist church that's at the end of the road. And you had to go down this incredibly long, but quite shallow ramp, metal ramp. And my friends and I would always love running down it and make as much noise as possible, like clanking, clanking, clanking. And then you'd burst through the doors at the end and have to be immediately completely silent. And we just, I don't know, we used to like rev ourselves up and then get get in the doors and have to be quiet and kind of hate it, but kind of love it. And I remember the smell of the air so clearly. It was like Mm. always a little bit too warm, always smelled a little bit of whoever just had a snack. (laughs) It's like, you know, just like kind of slightly sickly, slightly biscuity, um, hot air, not much ventilation, I would say. And then I would just see all of these books and like children's books are so good to look at, aren't they? They're full of pictures and colors and like wonderful imaginative worlds immediately on the cover. And I get very, very overexcited. But you know, what's really interesting to me is that I cannot remember the librarians at all. I don't, can't picture a single human being, just the sense of it and the books I can remember quite well. But yeah, I would go there and I would do reading groups and things like that. And like, you know, childcare things where you could dump your kid for an hour or something. And I remember one time, oh my God, this is such a classic like librarian story. I remember one time playing this, this supposed game. I don't know if you've heard of it, Carrie, it's called Sleeping Lions. Oh yeah. Octavia, I was a camp counselor. I was the queen of making children play Sleeping Lion. Excuse me, but it's the most bullshit game. <laughs> we actually called world. it Graveyard, which uh, is a little bit more. How could you? How yeah. could you enforce that on people? You're a monster. The kids it loved is, it. It's not a game. It's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, you basically just have to lie down in silence and compete for who can lie down in silence for the longest. Like it's not a game. It's a manipulation, and I stand against it. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, I have a kind of disgustingly cute detail about this library that no longer exists. Would you like to hear it? I would like to hear it. Well, when I was getting to know John, who is now my partner, we discovered that we grew up in the same neighborhood. And when we were talking about it, we realized that we read in the same library. So he would have been there. Oh and my there God, is I didn't like, know that. an insanely, so nice. I know this is an insanely high chance that we were probably there in the same childcare groups with our goofy little bowl haircuts, <laughs> reading books bigger than our heads oh, together. Lovely. Yeah, I know. And we must have also just like been brushing shoulders in the shopping mall around yeah. the corner and everything as teenagers. Like it's, it's really funny to think about it. Anyway, moving on from my personal history, do you have a favorite library currently? Yeah, I have to admit, um, like you, I don't really have a connection to a local library right now. And I don't really frequent libraries so much anymore. I do love popping into the free exhibitions at the Western Library in Oxford. I would really recommend that. That's the home of the special collections in the Bodleian. And they have an amazing one about the OED right now, which I would also recommend. Our very cool assistants at work, who are younger than me, of course, 
are um, obsessed with one of the libraries in Oxford, which they say is always stocked with the latest hot literary fiction and nonfiction as soon as it's published. And it's always like displayed in this really amazing way. And so they're always reading their books at lunch, which I love. And they always have those like plastic covers from the library. And I sort of look on thinking how cool they are for going to the <laughs> library and reading their books. How about you? Yeah, similarly. I mean, I miss the British Library, which honestly has been my tormentor for many years. But now, of course, I'm not there often. I I miss it. But also, I think because I was using that library for so many years and the various other uh, research libraries where often you can't check books out, you can only use them in the reading rooms. I just got completely out of the habit of borrowing books that I could take home, you know? Yeah. And the British Library, you can, I mean, they have every book, I think every book ever published in the English language or something insane. You can read anything in there that you could possibly imagine. But yeah, I kind of, when you're describing those little plastic covers, I was just thinking, God, I haven't held one of those in my hands for years. Yeah, me neither. And, you know, maybe this is why libraries are like losing funding because we're not using them enough, actually. Maybe this is a real call to consciousness for you and me, Carrie. It seems like a lot of admin to me. I know what you mean. And this is the thing. I think there is sometimes it feels like there's a barrier to entry. I mean, there definitely is with places like the British Library now, especially you have to give them a reading list and all this kind of bullshit to, to get your card in the first place. And you have to have an address, a lot, I think an English, maybe even a London address. Whereas obviously community libraries, the whole point is that you don't necessarily have to have a fixed abode to be able to use them because they're there for people to be able to try and like get online to find permanent accommodation if they don't have it, that kind of thing. But yeah, the other one I miss quite a lot, which is similarly a research library, although I think maybe you can check certain things out, but is the Welcome Library, Mm. which is opposite the Euston Station and part of the Welcome Centre. And it's honestly, if you've not been, it's so worth it. The collection there is a mixture of historical and contemporary books, and they have a bunch of archives and quite a lot of art as well. And their theme is exploring our relationship with health and medicine, but they approach it in quite a creative way. So you'd be surprised what you might find there. It's not just historical medical textbooks. And I hung out there a lot when I was researching my PhD because I was writing about hysteria. And while I was doing that long, long piece of writing, they renovated their reading rooms and they are so gorgeous. There's like the old stacks that you can sit and nestle in between. But then they also have this amazing staircase that descends into a big open room. And they have, or at least the last time I went, they had bean bags that were designed to look like uh, red blood cells <laughs> that you could lounge on. <laughs> love it. <laughs> and I really love like a nice visual tie-in to a thematic library. I think it's great. But yeah, I moved into this flat just before the pandemic started. And so I haven't even explored my local library as a place to work. But I know that one of the nearest ones is Highgate Library which I walked past on my way to Hampstead Heath. And it is a really, really beautiful old building. And I always see they have posters outside. They have a really thriving events program and stuff. So it's definitely one of those kinds of libraries that offers a lot of things. And now that we can move around more freely, I'm going to I'm gonna check it out for sure. But you know what else? I think that before the pandemic hit even, the cafe had replaced the library for me as a place to work if I don't need the books that the library has because of coffee. I just really (laughs) want to be able to drink coffee while I do my silly little job. Um, (laughs) And after I left academia, I was also just like, okay, basta libraries. It's it's been emotional, but I need a break. I need a break, I think. Yeah. I love working in libraries because it's quiet. I'm so easily distracted by noise. I find working in cafes really difficult. But then again, I haven't worked in a library in a long time. I think the 
sniffing would drive you insane. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yeah, it's this like idea of quietness that is never achieved um, and and made even worse by the the ways in which it is interrupted. So maybe the ambient noise of the cafe is is the better option. Yeah, I mean, I think at the BL now, most people in there seem to have headphones on or the last time I went I think everyone's just in there listening to like celestial white noise yeah (laughs) just try and block out they're like (laughs) shuffling and sniffing of everyone around them I mean this is the thing like when you go and sit in a library for a long time it's very humbling because it's just humanity everywhere whatever kind of library you're in even if you're in a really like snotty exclusive library when you're in a space that's silent like that you become very proximate to the bodies of the people around you I think Mm. you know you become very aware of their movements and their sounds and their needs, like how often someone gets up to go to the loo because it disturbs you every time they move their chair. Maybe I'm just hypersensitive to this stuff, but I that's what I think of when I think of libraries, just like deep, deep focus. And then also this kind of weird community of silent people. We're just trying really hard to get what we need from the space, but maybe interrupting yeah. each other. Although speaking of bodies, I just remembered a romantic anecdote about a library, which is that I briefly dated the guy who had a carol in front of me in my college library. So we basically, you got like, you could request to have your own desk where you left your books and stuff in the library. So we would always be there at the same time. And I asked him out and we went on a few dates. Were they fun? Yeah. And then I wasn't as into him as I was into like the idea of him having a library carol in front of me, sadly. So I <laughs> then I broke up with him. And then did you awkwardly see him? Oh yeah, then we had to still be sitting next to each other for the rest of the year, which was awkward. Girl, don't shit where you eat. That's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) So what about libraries in other places? Do you like discovering libraries when you're abroad? Do you go and visit libraries when you're on holiday? Like, Are there any ones that you've been to that aren't in the UK that you want to shout out? I do love visiting libraries in other cities, especially if they're architecturally interesting and built as a kind of focal point for public knowledge and engagement, which so many, of course, were. I love so, that, but also you just sound like a travel agent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Carry on, carry on. <laughs> Maybe I should quit my job and become a travel agent. I feel like there's probably money in that career Listen, if you now. want to get me cheap flights off this hell island, <laughs> I'm down for it. <laughs> um... Yeah. So my sister was living in Stockholm for a while. And when I was visiting her once, we went to the Stockholm Public Library, which it's like a kind of Swedish architectural style, but it has this amazing curved central room that is wall-to-wall books, which is just like you're standing in a temple of books, which I think that like these big public libraries are, aren't they? They're like churches of knowledge. And that excites me always. Yeah. I love the reading room at the Boston Public Library. It's insanely beautiful. It has this towering arch ceilings and these green lamps. And I just, I used to love going there as a teenager. And I remember when I was researching a history project and we had to go into the Boston Public Library to get books and we got to read them in the reading room and it just felt so special and exciting. And the New York Public Library is is very similar. It's just this incredible space, the reading room, which you can't believe was designed to house books. It looks more like a church or a palace, really. Yeah, I love that library. It's true though, isn't it? Like what what is it that moves human beings to create extraordinary structures? Religion, art, libraries. 
like the British Library is an extraordinary building. It's not beautiful in the same way. And actually, I remember when it was built or the new buildings were built, there was outcry. <laughs> People got very <laughs> uppity about it, about how brutal it was. It's yeah. shaken. Well, yes, but I think the outcry was justified. I'm sorry. It is like it doesn't have an entrance. But this is my general uh, problem what do you mean? with brutalism. It have an I just feel like it's really hard to get into it. I just every time I go there, I get confused about how I go into it. You go in through the big, <laughs> the big gates that say British no, Library. No, there are all these like different entrances, <laughs> and then you get inside, and they're all to the huge staircases. <laughs> And out of the atrium, and you don't know where anything is. It's just very confusing. How about you? I love uh, the Kandinsky Library at the Pompidou Centre in Paris, which is kind of the opposite, actually, of what you were just describing about the Boston Library, because it's in an amazing modern building. But don't worry, Carrie, it's not brutalist. It's quite straightforward to get in and out of. (laughs) Actually, I don't know if that's true about the Pompidou. It's not that straightforward to get in and out of. (laughs) Amazing. But this library is basically all glass walls and bright lights on silver stands. They have these clusters of lights that come out like stamens on a flower or something. It's not open to the general public, though, so you have to get pre-approval to go. And it's an art library, so they kind of say for appropriate research, you need to read some books about an artist that they're there. I've been once, and I, it was a long time ago, but I seem to remember it was quite straightforward to get the approval But even if you can't go in or you don't want to, there is this escalator that goes up the outside of the entire building and you go past the library and you can get a real good look in it. And you can also see all the incredibly serious, very sexy art writers smoking on the balcony outside, which is kind of my favorite bit. Yeah. But it has the words Bibliothèque Kondinsky in neon lights hanging from the ceiling inside it. So it's like, it's like the absolute opposite of kind of that fusty, but very charming green light on a wooden and velvet desk or whatever or leather isn't it they cover them in and then the other one that I wanted to say is also in Paris and it's the library at the Institut du Monde Arabe which is on the left bank Mm. which is one of my favorite buildings in Paris anyway but when I was there I was teaching um, at the university and my university library was appalling because I wasn't in the well-funded bit of the Sorbonne I was in the shit-funded bit of the Sorbonne (laughs) that has no money Um, And my students didn't have enough chairs for lessons. People would be standing up at the back of the room, all of that. And the library in my department was just basically a big classroom with some desks in the middle and loads of half rubbished books um, and none of what you needed. So I went to the Institut de Mondarab also just because it was a a quieter place to work. And um, honestly, the building is mind blowing. It was designed to be a dialogue between the Arab world and Western culture. So the whole thing is that the actual design of the building reflects its function. So the walls, the external walls are a mixture of really just a stunning aluminium and glass facades. And some of them are made up of these traditional patterns in Arab geometry. And they have apertures that open and close to let in more or less natural light. And so in the library, the light falls through these patterned windows on the ground in these incredible patterns. And the whole point with the the design was that this building is about the act of shedding light on the unknown. It's the main purpose of the whole building and that the library is actually kind of the heart of it. It's just magical. And it's a really, really beautiful way of rethinking how we conceive of those spaces. Some libraries are windowless, right? And like all about, obviously, the British Library and other big research libraries, they have to keep the temperature right for very old manuscripts and things like that. And that, that's got a whole different set of concerns. What I love about this Institut du Monde Arabe library is that 
it's thinking symbolically about what light means in those terms. You know what I mean? Lovely. Yeah. yeah. And I love the idea of just the space of the library being a space that's all about lifting the darkness, actually. So yeah, very beautiful, poetic space. Also, the cafe at the top of the Institut de Montarhub has some of the best views in Paris. So hit it up next time you're there. I feel like I've been to like the courtyard, which is very beautiful, but never inside. So Yeah, it's worth going. They always have really interesting exhibitions as well. But at the top, you can get a lovely mint tea and just look out over the city and over the water. It's really good. I should be a travel agent, it seems. <laughs> Maybe this is the end of literary fiction and the beginning yeah. of what would it be? Literary travels? Help me. Somebody stop literary me. Literary travels. No. <laughs> it has to be another pun. Oh my God. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll be thinking about this, everyone. We'll get we'll back to you. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to fund us going into business. <laughs> but back to books. What is an example of a book that you love, that you found in a library, or that maybe you were recommended in a library, or you borrowed from a library? Yes. So I haven't checked out a book from a library in a while. I mean, I just asked that question to humiliate you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, I think it has to be all the books I was introduced to by librarians when I was a kid, which was so many. Yeah, like The Ear, The Eye, and The Arm, which I mentioned before, or I'm pretty sure I read the Northern Lights trilogy, which was called The Golden Compass in America, because a librarian recommended that I read it. I love this author named E. Nesbitt, which I remember a librarian first turned me on to. So yeah, it was like my world was literally expanded by libraries when I was a kid. How about you? Yeah, same. Well, no, definitely the same. I remember in particular the Angelina Ballerina books. Yes, I loved those oh books God, so much. Yeah. And I do remember, you have jogged my memory, moments of being suggested I read books that were slightly more advanced than the ones that I was going for, you know, but I can't quite think what they were. I seem to remember also my parents just reaching a point where they were like, you have enough books. <laughs> we're not buying you any more books, <laughs> but the library's down the road. So there was a lot of that, like things that I, you know, wasn't going to be able to ask for for Christmas or my birthday or something. And the library was always there for me in those difficult times. <laughs> Thank you, libraries. I know. So when we did the bookshops episode, we were thinking about bookshop scenes in books and movies, and there was a lot to think about. But I know we both had a bunch of TV and movie thoughts about libraries as well. So what were top of your list of great library scenes in books and movies? Greatest library scenes in books and movies. An incomplete list by Carrie Plitt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking about like archives and manuscripts and things like that. And of course, there's The Name of the Rose, which is a wonderful novel by Umberto Eco, but also a great movie that I great watched recently. Great movie. Sean Connery really excelling himself. Yes, and a young Christian Slater. Yeah. Who is not the best actor, but but very yeah. entertaining to watch. Anyway. That's right. <laughs> he lets Sean really carry that movie. Yes, but it's, <laughs> it's an excellent movie. And um, I was also thinking about The Citadel in Game of Thrones. Oh my God, yes. Which is such an important part of that series in terms of how knowledge is kept and passed down and disseminated and of course becomes the source of a great secret that upends Westeros. I love how in the TV show, The Citadel is talked about and then portrayed. I loved all of those scenes. I was thinking about the protagonist in Jenny Offal's Weather 
is a librarian, which we spoke to her a little about the significance of a librarian, what a librarian does and how that intersects with climate crisis and the memory of our world and keeping records. And yeah, I thought she had so many interesting things to say about that. Well, that is another really important thing about libraries, isn't it? Like what they choose to retain and what they don't, because they have this ability to be the curators of like how people view the world, right? Yeah, totally. And we've talked a lot about queering the archives and um, other ways of kind of dipping back into what we have to find new things. But it's also things that have just been lost because nobody took care. And especially some of the oldest records we have are kind of like chants, like which librarians cared enough to like stash them under their robes or that (laughs) didn't get lost in a fire or got translated into Arabic and then translated back into Greek or whatever. You know, it's, it's a wonderful, quirky history of what gets saved, but also very, you know, discriminatory history and absolutely biased history. As you say, I was thinking about the musical, the music man. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get one in there. (laughs) Harold Hill, who is the chancer who arrives in town to convince them all to start a band and buy instruments for the kids, romances, Mary and the librarian. And there's a great song called Mary and the librarian, which he's singing in the library and he keeps getting shushed. And it's kind of disseminating that stereotype of the librarian as a draconian shusher. And Marion, the character is very uptight, but she learns to love. Um <laughs> And then, and then finally, I just wanted to mention the Beast Library and Beauty and the Beast because oh, yeah. that is like library porn. You know, that's just like anyone who's ever thought about books as something that they love or want to keep or see. That when that scene happens, when he shows Belle his library, it's it's better than when they kiss at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Yeah, I think all of those are really great. I was thinking, obviously, of Borges, mm-hmm. whose writing is just full of them. That man loved a library almost as much as he loved a labyrinth. In fact, I think you could say they were one and the same. Yeah, And they're great metaphors, aren't they? Libraries. Yeah, fabulous metaphors. Exactly. I was thinking about Buffy, <laughs> in which the library plays a vital role. And also the librarian, Giles, is like a big deal. <laughs> yes. Did you watch Buffy? I tried to. I watched like the first few episodes and I don't know, I just never got into it. I'm sorry to say. God, I'm so surprised. I kind of thought you would have been into it. I I, thought I I, would have loved it. And I I feel like maybe if I tried, it might have just been a weird time, you know, I just didn't get into it. And then I just abandoned it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get it. I loved it. But Basically, for any Buffy heads out there, you know what I'm talking about. That library was a big deal. (laughs) But also in in that program, it symbolized the potential fear and danger in books and that books are tools for education, but they can also be tools for like schooling you in the forbidden arts of witchcraft and that kind of thing. Nice. But also the library in that show becomes a refuge for misfits. And the librarian is this kind of friendly figure who welcomes the misfits under his wing and I like that idea as well. I mean, that was definitely not my experience of my library at school, but <laughs> I think it's a nice idea. Yeah. Um, it is a setting for teen movies a lot. I was thinking about The Breakfast Club right, as well, because which it's, is all set in the library. Yeah, because it's it's one of the few like places that within a school's grounds that you can be unsupervised. 
right? Like if you nip around the back of the stacks or whatever, the librarian can't see the whole room. Whereas if you're in a classroom, obviously your teacher's got eyes on you all the time. Wow. Not that I thought about this hard when I was at school or anything. I think also, you know, like I said earlier about the British Library being a horny place, but libraries in teen law are pretty horny. And the other place that they're pretty horny is in like prison shows. I was thinking of Orange is the New Black, where like the library becomes this, you know, in- incredibly important space because it's a place for the inmates to figure out how to counter their charges and reduce their sentences and educate themselves about the law and everything like that. But it's also a place where people go to have sex or like do deals and things like that. But I was thinking actually that the library within those institutions that are for incarceration, like takes on a totally, totally different meaning, like such an important meaning because when you are under the care of the state or punitive state is breathing down your neck, you are not given the opportunity to have any autonomy at all apart from in your mind. Mm-hmm. And so the library becomes this place where you you can reassert your sense of yourself as, a, as an independent human being, which is so important for people when they're incarcerated, I think. Great point. Thank you. I watch a lot of prison drama. <laughs> I do <laughs> I not. I think about it quite a lot. <laughs> Although I, I loved Orange is the New Black, and that is a good point about the library. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute with our cultural recommendations. Hello, this is Octavia and Carrie back to give you our cultural recommendations. So Carrie, you're up first. What's happening? What's happening? (laughs) Well, I have a recommendation, which is happening, I suppose. And it is a TV show called Severance. Oh God, I want to watch this so badly. Okay, I think you would love it. And I would really like you to watch it so that I can talk about it with you. I inhaled it last week. So the premise of the show, in case you don't know, which stars a very likable everyman, Adam Scott, who I feel like is kind of the new everyman. But there's a company called Lumen, which has invented a technology called severance, which means that severed, quote unquote, people live separate lives when they are at work and when they are at home. And the two selves don't know anything about what the other self is doing, nor do they have any memories from their life in work or at home. So really great idea, I would say. And it's definitely a mystery box show for sure, which I'm a sucker for. But I I would say, you know, sometimes the problem with mystery box shows is like, they're just posing a lot of questions and you never really get sufficient answers. But I feel like after watching the first season and after reading a bit about the writer and what he plans to do. I do think there is a game plan. So if you're worried about that, don't be worried. But it is also just a really, really, really smart examination of the self, of capitalism, of the emptiness of corporate culture, and of grief. And it works on both levels, amazingly, partially because the writing is great. It's funny. It's sad. It just works on a lot of different emotional levels. It's really well designed. Like the world feels such its own thing. And partially because the acting is really great. And there are a lot of kind of veteran character actors in there. Um, John Totoro is in it and he's excellent. But also there's another actor who had some like bit parts in succession, actually, which I didn't remember. But he's called Zach Cherry and he plays this like 
total corporate like bro stooge who is like the best on the team at doing what they do. He keeps getting rewarded with all of these like finger traps and caricatures and he just loves <laughs> it. And then and then for a variety of reasons he starts to kind of question what he's doing, but he's great. And the season finale unfolds in real time. It was almost too stressful. Like I was like gasping and like jumping out of my seat <laughs> and like covering my eyes. And it, it was a really good hour of television. So yeah, I'd really recommend it. It's on Apple TV. Um, how about you? What's your first recommendation? Mine is a very different kind of show. So I'm a few episodes into Lizzo's Watch Out for the Big Girls. And it's such a great watch, but it's like the opposite of what you just described because it's kind of reality TV, but it is just the most joyful show I've seen for ages. And I really think she's leading by example that that this kind of reality programs, they don't actually have to set people up to fail or to be humiliated. Like I, I don't tend to watch them that much. So it's been a while since I've engaged with this format. But when I started watching it again, I was like, oh, I remember like, you know, these are the kinds of shows where people are manipulated to behave in certain ways. And it just doesn't seem to be happening that much. There are moments, but it doesn't seem to be happening that much. Actually, it's pretty respectful of the participants. Basically, the premise is Lizzo is looking for more big women dancers to join her tour group. And she does a bunch of auditions and all these dancers show up expecting, you know, some minion to watch them dance and they come in the room and it's just Lizzo. (laughs) So it like blows their minds. And then these people are so fucking talented. So you just get the pleasure of watching them do their thing, which is incredible. And then she picks, I think it's 13 of them who will go and live in this house together. And this is where it gets a bit kind of reality TV-ish. Like they're they're in this house for however long it is and they're put through their paces and they learn some new skills and they do some kind of activities and bonding things and they work on their dance moves. They try different styles of dance. I mean, I'm only, I think, three episodes in, but it's really fun and these women are just so talented and they all seem like, you know, really decent people and they're kind of figuring themselves out alongside one another. But also Lizzo is just such a star. She's such a pleasure to watch on television. She's got such a good vibe to her and she's fun and she likes to have fun with these women. So there's kind of just this good feeling, basically, like a lot of sisterhood around. And I think the thing that's so heartwarming about it above all else is that Lizzo herself just seems to be genuinely rooting for these women so much. Like she wants them all to make it which is so different from the majority of these kinds of shows, which are all about eliminations every week and like who's put a foot wrong and they have to be chucked out. And it's just, it's not operating on that kind of framework, basically. And the only times that I've been a bit disappointed are actually when you feel like the producers are intervening to angle for a bit of drama. And they try to kind of, in the cutaway to interviews, they try to set people up as like a bit more difficult or whatever, because it just actually feels at odds with what the rest of the show is trying to do. But every time I've watched an episode, I've come away from it being like, I need to dance. Like, why am I? I'm not Mm. dancing enough. (laughs) Is it too late to retrain my entire life and become a dancer? (laughs) It just looks like the best thing to do with your time. Yeah, I feel I feel like the competition reality show format is made for dancing because it just feels so great to watch people dance, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It's just amazing. It's like such a raw talent. And what's cool about this is that some of the, the women in the show are professional dancers, but some of them aren't. They're just people who have taught themselves. And it's really wonderful that that kind of movement is a way that actually you don't necessarily have an edge if you've got professional training, Mm. um, which I think is fascinating. I was telling somebody about how much I loved watching dancing in West Side Story. And they were like, you know, TikTok is just people dancing. Like that's part of the appeal of that format. Yeah, yeah. Which was interesting to me. 
some amazing dancers on TikTok, but I, I've never seen them on TikTok because I don't have TikTok. I watch them like on Instagram. Yeah. People share them. I mean, what a granny. It's unreal. God help us. What is your next recommendation? Uh, my second recommendation is the essay Put on the Diamonds by the writer and critic Vivian Gornick. Oh, and she's great. Yeah, I was going to ask you if how, how well you knew her. But this essay first appeared in Harper's in October 2021, and you can still read it on Harper's online. So people have been telling me to read Gornick for a while now. She's 86 years old. Can you believe that? A kind of radical feminist. Um, she has this a pretty remarkable body of work of criticism, essays, and memoir. But I hadn't read anything by her before, and I can see why everyone was telling me to read her writing because this essay, it's not even that long, but it's so wide ranging and sharp and just very beautifully assured. It's so wise, basically. And it was written in the wake of the Me Too movement. And it's it's basically about humiliation and particularly how humiliation can be the root of some people's need to assert power over others and, and how um, wounding being humiliated is for humans. But I think that's a very dry assessment of a very alive essay. Uh, the centerpiece and, and the kind of title is Gornick's description of a scene in George Eliot's Daniel Deronda in which one character forces another to put on the diamonds which she does not want to wear and he insists that she wear. And it, it made literature come alive in a way that I think very few critics can do. Like it's really actually hard to describe a fictional scene and make it interesting. And she does that in this essay. And I now really want to read her memoir, Fierce Attachments, which Dawn Books republished a few years ago. But in the meantime, please, everyone, if you haven't, go read Put on the Diamonds. It's pretty short and it's wonderful. She's a fantastic writer. I think I might be wrong about this, but I think in um, Mary Carr, who's another memoirist who we were talking about in the show recently, in her book about how to write memoir, she's a bit salty about Vivian Gornick. <laughs> oh, really? Vivian Gornick, in her uh, memoir, Fierce Attachments, like when she's talked about it in interviews, was like, well, it's true, but like, you know, writer's license or whatever. And Mary Carr is obsessed with being totally exclusively truthful when you write memoir. And so she's like a little bit sassy about being Gornick, <laughs> which really cracked me up because I was like, come on, ladies, you're both amazing writers. Like, Love it. give it a rest. Love a little literary yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Low stakes. Uh, what's your last recommendation? Mine is a podcast. And I know I've mentioned this podcast before. It's called Death, Sex, and Money. It's an American podcast. Um, but this time I'm recommending this mini series that they just did called Hard which is a three-part series about erectile dysfunction, and it's such good radio. So the presenter, Anna Sale, it took me a while to get into her style of interviewing when I first started listening years ago, but I'm now just very committed to her because she has this incredibly graceful way of conducting really, really intimate conversations with strangers. And it sounds very easy. And being someone who interviews people for a living, it's really not. <laughs> it's really not easy to create an environment where they can speak safely about themselves. And she's doing it about the most kind of profound things we talk about, death, sex, and money, right? Like these are extremely revealing subjects and especially in this mini series because it's about erectile dysfunction. So she interviews men and women and people struggling with this problem, either in their relationships or with their, their own bodies, all different ages, all different sexual orientations, all different experiences of it. And you just get the chance to hear 
especially the men really being incredibly vulnerable about something that society tells them they should be ashamed of. It really gets into the weeds about the toxic sides of masculinity and also femininity, sexual expectations that focus on penetration and how kind of they hold everybody back from deeper pleasure a lot of the time. She also explores the invention of Viagra, which has this really fascinating history, actually. And my God, like, talk about the sexist establishment of healthcare because <laughs> you will get a bit angry about that. There's also like a lot about ableism and normativity. And there's some really beautiful interviews about the way that our sex lives change over our lifetimes with much older couples who've been having sex for 50 years and how their relationship to their bodies has changed. And it manages to be like funny and moving and really interesting ultimately just incredibly heartwarming. And like, I think most good things, it's really about human fragility. And I really just think everybody should listen to it. I think it's very humbling, really. Just hearing people being raw like that, I I respond well to it. And the final episode in particular, I would say is really brilliant, but I think it's worth listening to the whole series. That sounds great. And I will listen to it. Yeah, I think you'd really enjoy it. I'd love to talk to you about it after. I'm looking at it up right now on my podcast app. Love that diligence. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you to Daphne Carnesis for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for a show with Lauren Elkin talking about Simone de Beauvoir. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt and this is Literary Traveling. (laughs) No? (laughs) Trying it? Just trying it out besides. This is Literary Friction, don't worry. I'll never never try and be funny again. I laughed. (laughs)